Well, how many of you enjoy all of the lights during the holiday season? I, I don't know about you, but I love the Christmas season. I love driving around the neighborhoods, checking out the lights. Yeah, I see a hand up over there. And, uh, you know, so, so to those of you who decorated your houses, thank you, because I get a kick out of that. I just love seeing the Christmas displays and the lights. In fact, uh, just uh, last weekend, my family and I, we spent the afternoon Saturday watching one of those cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, the few things are better to get you in the Christmas spirit than a, than a good uh, Hallmark Christmas movie. But uh, after the movie was over, we decided, you know, hey, let's go drive around the neighborhoods and look at, look at the Christmas lights. And so we got in our car, we drove around Lindstrom and Chisago and just checked out some of the different Christmas light displays out there. And uh, it was a great time, right? Right up until the cops pulled us over thinking we were burglars casing the neighborhoods or something. But, uh, but other than that, it was, it was tremendous. But as I was thinking about Christmas lights this week and, uh, and just appreciating all of them, I had this thought that came to my, my mind. I started wondering, there's got to be a Guinness Book of World Record out there for, for the best Christmas light display. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever wondered that? You know, I, you see these like YouTube videos with all these, you know, cool Christmas uh, displays. And so I just started thinking, there's got to be a Guinness World Record out there somewhere for the greatest Christmas light display. So sure enough, I go online, I start doing some research, and uh, I come across a bunch of articles and here's the thing, believe it or not, for the last 20 years, there has been a transcontinental battle going on between two families trying to claim the title of the Guinness World Record for the best Christmas light display. The, the record was first set back in 2001 by a family in Canberra, Australia. And uh, this family set the original record with a Christmas light display of 331,038 bulbs. All right? Now, now, it's hard to even imagine you could see a house behind that, but, uh, but that was the original record. Well, there was a family in New York, LaGrangeville, New York, and they just couldn't handle the fact that there was an Australian family that had the record. And, you know, they thought, hey, they're good Americans. We need the USA to have this record. And so they went all out. And uh, in 2012, Tim, Tim Gray and his family from LaGrangeville, New York, they uh, broke the record decorating their house with 346,382 Christmas lights. Now, you would think like, man, how can you even beat that? Well, the family in Australia the next year said, no way, we're getting our title back. And so the next year, this family in Australia, they decorated their house with a whopping 502,165 lights. They're thinking, man, we upped it by 100,000. Who's going to beat this, right? Well, leave it to our friends in New York. They brought the title back home for America. So in 2015, this family in LaGrangeville, New York, they decorated their house. And you can see the pictures on the screen behind me. 601,736 lights. Friends, that's over 29 miles of wire. 29 miles of wire. It cost them $2,500 a month in utility bills to put up in their holiday display. But this is the current Guinness Book of World Record holder. I mean, is that incredible or what? So if you were ever wondering, uh, you got a lot of work to do if you uh, are hoping to shoot for that Guinness World Record. But you know, as I was thinking about Christmas lights this week, uh, I started to ponder the question, you know, what is it about Christmas time that brings out this fascination with us, uh, this fascination in us with, you know, these brilliant displays of light? Why is it that 
light plays such a prominent role in so many of our favorite Christmas traditions. Whether it's decorating our homes or lighting the Christmas tree or candles in the window, special candles around the house, or maybe Rudolph's nose. You know, it just seems that light plays a very prominent role in, in so much of what we love about Christmas. And I wonder, could it be that the joy we find in the lights of the holiday season is really a reflection of a deeper longing in our hearts? Could it be that we have a longing for something to illuminate our lives with hope and meaning and purpose? Could it be that our our fascination with the lights of the holiday season is really pointing us to something even more brilliant? A light pure, truer, more radiant than anything this world has to offer. And you see, friends, I don't believe this love of light at the holiday season is an accident. The reality is, is 2,000 years ago, something transpired that forever changed human history. 2,000 years ago, God invaded human history and forever split history into B.C. and A.D. when God took on human flesh and became a man. And from that point on, nothing has ever been the same since the arrival of the Messiah. The true light of the world, the true light of Christmas, shined into the darkness. The Apostle John described that momentous event like this in John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, Christmas is all about God's invitation to seek and to follow the light that is Jesus. And every other light that we see this time of year is simply a pale reminder that the true light of life, the true light of the world, has come when Jesus broke into human history, took on flesh to become a man. And as we think about this powerful message today, that the light of the world has come, It's a message that we Christians have historically called the gospel, the good news. That God has made himself available to us, that we can know him and have a relationship with him. As we think about this powerful message today, I've got a question for us to consider. I think it's probably one of the most important questions that any of us could think about, not only at Christmas, but at any time of year. And that question I want us to think about this afternoon is simply this. How will you respond to the light of Christmas. How will you respond to the light of Christmas? You know, when we look at the stories of the nativity in the Gospels, the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the Gospel of John, when we see the stories of the nativity, the coming of Christ into the world, what we find are are really four common responses to the light of Christmas. Four responses common not only in the day of Jesus, but four responses that I think are common even in our day and age. In fact, I think many of us here, all of us here, would relate to at least one of these. 
When we look at the stories of the nativity, the first thing we find is that there are some who search for the light. There are some who search for the light of Christmas. And I think of the stories of the wise men or the magi. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we read this account of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd to my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Now, when you think about the wise men, it's very interesting. These are such prominent figures in the story of Christmas. But many of us aren't really familiar with who these wise men were. Why are they even a part of the story? I mean, where are they coming from? Coming from the east. Why are they following this star? How do they even know to look for a star or the arrival of a Messiah? Well, to understand the role of the Magi in the story of Christmas, we need to go back about 500 years in the history of Israel. 500 years before Christmas, before the arrival of Jesus, the nation of Israel was in captivity in the land of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire had conquered the nation of Israel and taken the Israelites to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and they were there living in captivity. There was a class of people in this area of the world, Babylon, Persia, known as the Magi, the wise men. These were men who served at the highest levels of society. They were, they were priests of the religion, but they were also astrologers, they were philosophers, they were advisors to kings and emperors. They were of this priestly class. And the book of Daniel in the Old Testament tells the famous story of this Jewish prophet named Daniel who came to captivity in Babylon with the people of Israel but God had blessed Daniel with this incredible ability to interpret dreams. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered the Israelites at this time, 500 years before Jesus, he began having these dreams that troubled him. And none of the Magi could interpret his dreams for him. But God raised up this Jewish boy, Daniel, with the ability to interpret dreams. And so Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with Daniel's ability to interpret dreams that the Bible says that he actually placed Daniel in the role of chief magi. This Jewish boy in captivity became the chief over all the magi, over all the wise men in Babylon. And friends, I have to believe that as the chief of all the wise men, Daniel probably used his position of influence to show the people of Babylon the truth that God had revealed in Scripture. 
And he began to share and teach with the other wise men the prophecies in the Bible foretelling the coming of a king who would be the savior of the world. And I think Daniel probably shared prophecies like Numbers 24, 17, where the Bible prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus that a star would come out of Israel, a scepter would rise out of Judah. The Magi were looking for a star because God had promised hundreds of years earlier that a star would be the sign pointing the way to this ruler who would come. And Daniel taught them other prophecies like Micah 5.2 that this Messiah was going to be born in the land of Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And so these wise men, the reason they were looking for Jesus, the reason they were looking for a star and following the star to find the king was because they had believed the prophecies in the Old Testament that Daniel, the chief of the Magi, had communicated to them. It's very fascinating when we understand the history of why these wise men from the east came looking for Jesus. They didn't have a roadmap to Jesus. All they had was their hope and their belief in God's promises. And so they followed the light that they had until they came to Bethlehem and found the King of Kings. You know, it's very interesting when you think about these magi walking by faith, searching for the truth, looking for the light and following what little light they had. I think there are many of us even here today who really resonate with the Magi's search. In fact, maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you've been in a period of spiritual searching lately. Maybe you've been asking questions, wondering, is there really truth that can be known? Is there really a God who, who I might have a relationship with? What, what is this Jesus stuff all about? Is he really the savior of the world? Is Jesus really the reason for the season? And maybe you've found yourself in this place of spiritual searching like the Magi. And I'd encourage you, friends, if that's where you are, to continue to follow the light. Follow the light that God has revealed to us. You know, the Magi followed the light that they had been given in Scripture, that Daniel taught them the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's a great place to start. Do you realize there are over 60 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah? Over 60 prophecies given hundreds of years before Jesus. We have some incredible prophecies like you see on the screens behind me. First, all the way back in the book of Genesis, the Bible, God prophesied that the Messiah would come. He would be of the human race. But not only would he be of the human race, he would be of the seed of a woman. Now, that's very incredible because every one of us here is of the seed of a man. But the Bible prophesied that the coming Messiah, while human, would have no earthly father. He would be of the seed of a woman. And then the Bible went on to prophesy not only that he would be a human, but he would come from the line of Abraham. He would be a Semite, a Jew. And God eliminated a whole bunch of people in all of world history by saying the Messiah would come out of the Jewish nation. Not only that, but God went on and told us what tribe out of the nation of Israel the Messiah would come from. He would come out of the tribe of Judah. And then God in 2 Samuel prophesied to King David. He told King David that King David's lineage would never end, that there would always be a king reigning on the throne of David. And Jesus came as the King of kings and King of kings and Lord of lords who reigns to this day, fulfilling that prophecy. We read in Isaiah 7.14 that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born, Micah 5.2, in the little town of Bethlehem. 2,000 years ago, a very insignificant, tiny little speck on a map. But hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Micah told us where to look to find the Messiah. 
We have incredible prophecies like Daniel 9.25, which tells us the exact time period in which the Messiah would come. Jesus was born in 4 BC. Daniel, his prophecy in Daniel 9.25, if you do the math, it works out to the Messiah appearing in 26 AD. The Bible tells us Jesus began his earthly ministry when he was 30 years old. 4 BC plus 30 years, Jesus appeared on the scene as the Messiah, 26 AD. And we have these incredible prophecies over and over again throughout Scripture. Over 60 prophecies, hundreds of years in advance, pointing to the coming of the Messiah. Now, some of you might be here thinking this morning, well, or this afternoon, well, you know, how do we know somebody didn't just write these into the Bible after the fact? You know, I mean, Jesus showed up, he did all this cool stuff, and they wanted to make him into a deity, and so they wrote all these prophecies into the Bible later on to make it look like he was this divine figure. Well, that was a popular claim that many skeptics held for hundreds of years, right until the early 20th century when archaeologists discovered something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Excavating in caves in southern Israel in an area known as Qumran, archaeologists uncovered hundreds of clay tablets, clay pots filled with manuscripts of the entire Old Testament. Every book of the Old Testament other than the book of Esther, but they found hundreds of manuscripts of the Old Testament dating to 200 years before Christ. Guess what they discovered? All these prophecies were there 200 years before Jesus. Well, some people say, well, Jason, all right, fine. So there's all these prophecies. But you know what? If you throw a whole bunch of people in the mix, I mean, ultimately you're going to find one guy that fits these prophecies, right? Why is Jesus so special? Well, friends, have you ever considered the probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in just a single person? A mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner, he was a doctor in mathematics from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Years ago, Dr. Stoner decided to look at the probability that one man could fulfill all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. He said, let's forget the 60 prophecies. Let's just look at eight of them. Let's take eight of them. Is it even probable that one man could fulfill all of these prophecies. Dr. Stoner did the math. He said that the odds of one person fulfilling all of these prophecies was the equivalent of one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros after it. Now, now I'm not a mathematician and my mind doesn't work numerically like that. So Dr. Stoner, he understood that. So he brought it down to the average man's level. And he, he said, look, it, this would be the equivalent of covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. And on one of those silver dollars, you mark an X. And then you take a guy with a blindfold and you spin him around three times and then you send him out in these fields of silver dollars and you tell him you got one chance to pick the silver dollar with the X on it. Friends, the odds of that happening are astronomical. Unbelievable. And yet we see in the person of Jesus Christ the fulfillment of each and every one of these prophecies that God had told us to look for so that we would know the coming of the Messiah. See, friends, the light is still available for those of us with eyes to see it. If you're searching for the truth, why not begin right where the Magi did? Go to the Word of God and let the promises of God, the prophecies of God, point you like it pointed the wise men to the coming of Jesus Christ. God's light still shines today. And if you'll search for him, God will make himself known. The light of truth will shine through your doubts and skepticism. 
I'd even invite you to join us at the end of February for our, our apologetics conference. We have some of the world's leading experts in apologetics. The word apologetics simply means to give a defense, why we believe what we believe. They're going to come and share with us why we can have confidence in the story of the Bible, in the person of Jesus. What about all the different faiths out there? What about evolution? What about all these different questions people ask? Friends, the truth is found in Jesus. And if you'll search for him like the wise men, you'll find him. A second response we see in the nativity stories in the scriptures is that, number two, sadly, some people reject the light of Christmas. Some people reject the light of Christmas. In Matthew 2, 12 through 15, we read of the story of King Herod. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. King Herod was a ruthless dictator. King Herod wasn't the rightful king of the Jewish people. He was a puppet king set up by the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people despised him. But Herod held on to his throne with ruthlessness. In fact, when anybody challenged him, he would just immediately put them to death. Herod is known throughout history as one of the greatest mass murderers ever. In fact, he killed his own wife, fearing she was conspiring against him. He killed two of his sons, fearing they were conspiring against him. He was a ruthless, evil man. Why did Herod want to kill Jesus? It's because Herod knew there could only be one true king. And Herod didn't want to share his throne with anyone. Now, friends, while we revile Herod for his cruelty, I think many of us resemble Herod more than we'd like to admit. You see, a lot of us are very content reigning as the king over our own lives. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. I enjoy running my own life. I enjoy being the king or the queen. I enjoy calling the shots. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't submit to anybody. I live life on my own terms. But see, friends, Christmas doesn't give us that option. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Jesus went on to teach things like John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus say, I am the way? Because, friends, without Jesus, you are lost. Why did Jesus say, I am the truth? Because, friends, if you're living your life following anything else other than Jesus, you are living in error. Why did Jesus say, I am the life? It's because without Jesus, friends, you don't know real life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. A life apart from Jesus isn't real life at all. True life is only found in a relationship with your creator, the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who longs for you to know an eternal relationship with him. So I ask you this afternoon, who sits on the throne of your heart today? 
Are you ruling your life? Or have you allowed the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to sit on the throne of your heart? The third response we see in the Nativity stories is one of my favorite responses. And that is this. Some are surprised by the light of Christmas. Some are surprised by the light of Christmas. In Luke 2, 8 through 18, we read the story of the shepherds who experienced an incredible surprise that Christmas Eve. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. I love the story of the shepherds. You know, it's interesting when you think about the shepherds. They were probably the least likely candidates of all people in Israel to receive a special divine encounter like they did. You know, shepherds were considered to be the lowest rung on the social ladder in the nation of Israel. They, they were considered ceremonially unclean because they spent their lives living with animals. In fact, to be a shepherd meant you basically had no other job opportunities available to you, and so you took the work of a shepherd spending time with the animals because that's what you did when you didn't have any other options. Shepherds were generally despised in that culture. But I find it really interesting, who is it that God appeared to with this angelic host to announce the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He appeared to the shepherds. He appeared to those who the culture around them would have said were the least likely to receive the good news. But see, God is in the business of surprising people, friends. And God showed up to the least of these, to those who least expected it. And he announced the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, I, I really find that good news, you know, for, for those of us who are just average, ordinary people, for those of us who have mistakes in our past, who have failed our friends and our loved ones, who have failed God, I really find it to be good news that God arrives and shows up to surprise people just like me, just like those shepherds. And what was the message that God shared with the shepherds? He says, good news of great joy for all people. Friends, the light of Christmas, the message of Jesus, the hope of the gospel is for all people. For all of us. A Savior has been born to you. And I'll tell you something, friends. You know what? God is still in the business of surprising people today. And he often shows up to those who least expect it. I've got a good friend of mine named Tom Osgood. Tom attends the church I worked at before coming to Lakes Free, Grace Point Church, where my brother's the senior pastor in New Brighton. About 10 years ago, Tom became a follower of Jesus. 
And if Tom were here with you this afternoon, he would share a powerful story of how God showed up and surprised him. See, Tom grew up his entire life as an alcoholic. Tom shares that he remembers being drunk as young as five years old. He used to follow his dad and mom around to the bars. They'd give him a sip of beer on the side. He'd go in the summer times following his dad to his softball games, and he'd chase beers around for the guys, and he'd take a chug as they would hand him a beer or pass him off to another guy. And Tom says, I remember being buzzed as young as five years old. He was an alcoholic his whole life. When he became a young adult, he lost his marriage because of it. He lost two kids because of it. Tom found himself in the depths of despair, wondering if there was any hope at all for him, for somebody who was so broken, so lost. Ten years ago, Tom found himself one evening sitting all alone in his apartment. He had lost his family. He had lost his home. He found himself sitting all alone in the one chair he had with a bottle in one hand and a shotgun in the other. And Tom was contemplating ending it all. And in that moment, Tom cried out to God. He said, God, if you're real, I need you to show up because I'm, I'm without hope. About a half hour away, another friend of mine, Verlin Vanderluck, was getting ready for bed. Verlin was a co-worker at Tom. They are in the construction business. They weren't really friends. They just worked together. But Verlin says that that night he got this overwhelming sense from God that I needed to call Tom. He would have never called Tom. It just it wasn't how they related to one another. But God, God just said, Verlin, you need to call Tom now. And so my friend Verlin at 10 o'clock that night got on the phone and said, Tom, I, I don't know why I'm calling you. I just feel like God told me to reach out to you this evening. And Tom started bawling on the other end of the line and explained to Verlin that he was about to take his life. A few days later, Tom and Verlin were sitting in the pastor's office at Grace Point Church with a group of men going through the scriptures, sharing the hope of the gospel with them. Tom gave his life to Jesus. What's most amazing about the whole story, when Tom gave his life to Jesus, he went home that evening and he couldn't even... He couldn't even be near alcohol. He was repulsed by it. The smell of it made him sick and he wanted to throw up. He hasn't touched alcohol since, 10 years later. See, friends, God is still in the miracle business today. He's still in the business of surprising people, showing up when you least expect it, and offering hope to those who think there is no hope. And it's very interesting when you think about being here this afternoon. Maybe today is the day of your surprise encounter with God. You know, maybe you're here today because you're looking for hope. You're looking for peace. You're looking for some good news in a life just filled with darkness. And maybe today is the day of your surprise encounter. Maybe, maybe you're here against your own will this afternoon. Maybe you're here because your mother-in-law dragged you here and you're just here trying to keep peace with your family so that you can get home and eat your Christmas dinner tonight. But maybe you're really here because God has bigger plans for you. Maybe you're really here because this is the day of your divine encounter with God. And he wants to change your life if you'll just open up your heart to him. This leads me to my final point, which is the ultimate response to the light of Christmas, and that's just this. Number four, some people embrace the light. 
Some people embrace the light and they're changed forever. Luke 2.19, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, we read of Mary. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The visitation of the angels, the magi, the shepherds, the baby Messiah in her arms. The Bible says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The Greek word there for treasured up simply means to collect or preserve something of value. It, it's sort of like, I remember when I was a little kid, I had this little safe, you know, and I would, all my favorite baseball cards or special coins or, you know, different trinkets and mementos, I would put it in my safe to protect it, to keep it safe, to preserve it. And that's the image of Mary holding the baby Jesus, treasuring up all these things in her heart. As you think about Christmas today and the light of Christmas coming into the world, how about you, friends? Have you embraced the light of Christmas? Have you treasured up Jesus in your heart this afternoon? You know, there's no greater gift you could receive this Christmas than to embrace the light of the world. You know, I'm going to tell you something. In two days from now, the Christmas cookies are all going to be eaten. Presents are all going to be open. You're going to have kids complaining about not getting the right toy that they wanted. And you're going to experience that inevitable Christmas letdown that happens almost every year. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because when you embrace the light of Christmas, the true light of Christmas... See, see for, for those of us who know Jesus, friends, it's Christmas every day. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. She's like, yeah, baby, preach it. For those of us who know Jesus, it's Christmas every day. He's the greatest gift you could ever receive. New life, forgiven of all your sins, cleansed of all your guilt and shame. A new relationship with your creator, your heavenly father who loves you. The hope of eternal life, salvation to know with certainty that you are secure in the arms of Jesus for all of eternity? See, there's nothing greater, friends, than embracing the light of Christmas. John 1.12, which we read earlier, it's probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received the gift of Christmas? Have you embraced Jesus into your life? Have you treasured up the light of Christmas. God can change your life. He can change it forever. John 3.16 says that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. That's where the true joy of Christmas is found. It's found in knowing your maker, it's found in knowing the king of the universe. It's found in embracing him and inviting him into your life. And I hope you know that joy because it's where the true light of Christmas is found. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you are and all you've done. And we thank you especially for sending your son into this world so that we could know you, so that we could have a personal relationship with you, so that we could experience hope joy, peace, and all that you give us. And Lord, I just pray that this Christmas Eve and tomorrow on Christmas Day that we would remember in the midst of all the celebration and food and friends and family and presents, that in the midst of all that, Lord, may you renew in our spirits the recognition that all of it, all of our celebration is because of Jesus. 
And I pray, God, that each and every one of us here would know the joy of Christmas in a very real and special way as we reflect on what it is we're celebrating, the coming of the Messiah into the world, the promise of new life, the promise of hope for eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for for changing my heart and changing my life. And thank you, God, for the work of salvation that you've done in so many of us here in this room. And Lord, I can imagine that there may be somebody here this afternoon who doesn't yet know if they have a relationship with you. Maybe they're here today against their will. Maybe they're here today because they've been searching for hope. Maybe they're here today and they're finding out that you have a surprise in store for them. And so I just pray, God, if there's anybody here this afternoon who doesn't know with certainty that they are a child of God, that even right now in the quiet of our hearts here this afternoon, that they might just say a simple prayer. And if you like, you can repeat after me in the quiet of your own heart. Lord Jesus, I know I need you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to make me a new creation. I want to get off the throne, and I want you to rule over my life. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for dying on a cross for me so that I could be forgiven. Friends, I'll tell you, if you pray that prayer, God knows your heart. He knows your desires. He will forgive you and make you a new creation. You can leave here today a child of God. What a great privilege. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I pray that my friends here would all have a very Merry Christmas. And may we never forget the real meaning of why we celebrate. It's all because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This next part of our service is one of my favorite parts because it's just such a good reminder, a visual reminder of what Jason was just talking about, how Jesus came to be our light on that silent night. So if you grabbed a candle at the door, you can pull that out and turn it on. And we're going to sing Silent Night together. Would you please stand? i uh-huh. 
thank you for joining us for our Christmas Eve service. I pray you have a tremendous Christmas. If any of you would like to pray with someone after our service, our elders will be down here at the front of the sanctuary. But now may you be filled with the hope of the Magi, the surprise of the shepherds, the wonder of Mary, and the peace of the Christ child. May God bless you this Christmas. Amen. Amen.